0: Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris.
1: I'm Thomas Craft.
0: And we're here to help you plan, design and deliver your best presentation.
1: G'day bosses, it's episode 96 of the show and we're in that stage of the rotation where we find a cool person out there in the speaking world and we have a chat to them.
0: Today, we have Marty Wilson. Marty has written one of my favorite books that's sitting on my bookshelf. Um, It's called More Funny, More Money, and it's all about using humor in business. And it's a really great how-to on how to do humor.
1: That's been on your shelf for years, that book.
0: It has. I've had it for a long time, and I... And it did help me a lot with my initial understanding of humour from a more, for want of a better word, like academic perspective. Like I've always enjoyed humour, always used it, but never really knew exactly how to break it down. And it was a really good introduction on on breaking it down to those kind of core levels and, and having that understanding, I guess.
1: And it turns out the author, Marty Wilson, lives here in Queensland. That was a surprise to me.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. He's just up the North Coast, not too far away. Mm. So as always, we had a great chat with him.
1: There was some stuff he said that super reaffirmed, I think, what we already know about humour. And there was also some stuff in there that was just wildly new and just clunked into my brain really nicely.
0: Yes, there was actually some storytelling stuff that I really loved that was new information and and it's always exciting to learn something new. So I hope (laughs) that you really love it. We really loved it.
1: Why don't we then get into it, Kate? Mm -hmm. First, tell us his bio.
0: Marty Wilson is a resilience expert who has spoken to over 1,000 inspirational people about how to live well through the good times and the bad. Marty is a pharmacist turned award-winning advertising copywriter, turned stand-up comic, turned best-selling author and speaker. He's spoken to over 500,000 people since he first leapt up on stage in 1997, and within 12 months he appeared on the footy show and travelled to the UK to become a full-time stand-up. He returned home in 2008 and now lives in Noosa. He's the author of More Funny, More Money, which is about using humor in business to get more influence, more engagement, and more sales. So Marty Wilson, welcome to the
2: Presentation Boss Podcast. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, So Marty, we've heard the official bio, and I'd love to know, what are you passionate about when you're not at work?
2: When I'm not at work, possibly... Um, I moved out of Sydney up to a place called Noosa in Australia. For those, about an hour and a half north of Brisbane on the east coast of Australia. For your overseas listeners, and so um, it's about because I lived in Sydney. I lived uh, in Sydney and then London and then Sydney, and so we moved here about two years ago. And so it's just getting out of the house and getting into nature. And for those. A profuse apologies for those listening all around the world uh, who are in lockdown. Like My wife's English and her mum uh, and her sister are back home in England and they're still in, you know, stage 47 lockdown or whatever it is. And then it's like it's really brutal and mm. uh, there's snow and it's cold. But the thing that we love doing on the weekend, is, i got three boys, three very energetic young men, um, dragging them into the countryside and just uh, getting
1: away from the big smoke. Yeah. So good, because Noosa and, like, the hinterland up there is just some of the the best parts of Queensland as well. It's such a great yeah, part of the world to be there in. Is, there's
2: waterfalls, there's bushwalks, there's, you know, mountains that are like, you know, really hills that you can climb quite easily, and, and it's a really, really lovely part of the world.
0: Yeah, that's one of your favourites to hike and to explore around, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I was up there, uh, yeah, over Christmas last mm. year. Spent a couple of days up around Noosa and uh, up in up in the hinterland. Mm. yeah.
0: Um, I actually find that an interesting question because when I ask people what they're passionate about outside of work, I really love that people are like, oh, I don't even know, oftentimes, <laughs> which mean, which is a great thing because it means that they're really passionate about what they do. So I love when people um, aren't entirely sure. So let's get into the work then. Um, to start with, can you tell us the idea behind your book, which I absolutely love, I've got on my bookshelf, um, More Funny, More Money. How can people expand their careers by being funny?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's one of those things where, particularly in in the business world, um, my catchphrase is uh, people don't take funny seriously, and they should, and they should because it's a really powerful tool. It it taps into some of the most... Primal things that come, and I'm sure we'll get into this uh, as the podcast goes on. But it was uh, a guy called Brian Tracy, who's anyone who's into a communication has heard of a guy called Brian Tracy. So I always quote him because it's sort of like if I say it, um, people won't accept it. But if oh, Brian Tracy said it, then you know, <laughs> fair enough. Um, Brian Tracy said, Your ability to communicate with others will account for fully 85% of your success in your business and your life. And so one of the ways that we very quickly establish rapport is by using humor and in business in business people don't take funny seriously and I think that's a massive mistake like in business it's almost like that now this is business is serious I'm serious you're serious it's serious business and business (laughs) is serious but business is done by human beings and people love to laugh people and there's so much research, I'm sure we'll get into this as the, as the podcast goes on as to why we love to laugh so much, but it's just that simple thing of in business, like you and I are talking to each other across a screen and we are in a physically adversarial position. So you're facing me and I'm facing you and so much of business is done like that. If I make a joke about something and we are both laughing at the same thing, it's almost like we turn side on. I've got my arm around your shoulders and we're both pointing off to my left, your right. And we're both looking at something over there. And all of a sudden, we are not on the side, different sides of the table anymore. We're both together laughing at something over there. Then all of a sudden, see, in business, like our brains separate everyone in the world into them and us like people that we considered to be other than us, like not in our tribe, not in our group. And, and this comes from you know, 20,000 years ago when we all lived in tribes of maximum about 150, 200 people. And, and so we, it, it was uh, beneficial for us. That that's why human beings are social animals. That's why human beings have dominated the earth because we gathered together in tribes and help each other. And so we separate everyone into them and us. If I can get you laughing at the at uh, something that I consider funny as well, all of a sudden all those defence mechanisms drop away, and you put me in the basket of us because we're very quickly bonded, and all those defence mechanisms uh, drop away, and so all of a sudden we instantly have rapport. Now I'm sure we'll get onto in, in the in the podcast later on as to how to do that in a business context, because some people do it really really badly. Um, the the fact remains that if you can do business acceptable humour, then
1: it's a massive weapon that you can have in your armoury. So you said there that the reasons that we love humour and we like to laugh are there reasons other than just that it makes all of us the us.
2: Yeah, I mean, for example, um, oh, there's there's so much research into, um, for example, uh, pe- they they rated people uh, people rated their physician as to um, how uh, they would trust their diagnosis and do the things that the physician told them to do to get better. People who rated their physician as having a good sense of humour, they were one and a half times more likely. So in their eyes, um, their physician, their doctor had more credibility in their diagnosis and in their uh, in, in the instructions they give you to get better from what the, that diagnosis is. So you know who in business doesn't want more credibility? Yeah, yeah. You know it, it, even even just in a um, uh, this is like the power of laughter. You know that's why um, for people like me um, who use a lot of humor in their speaking, Zoom's really hard because you mm-hmm. don't hear the laughter. And one of the things they 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 found that if you even only 25% of a room laugh out loud, the approval ratings, the trust factor, the like the credibility of everyone in the room towards the person up on stage or towards the person um, making the room laugh goes up. Because we are social animals, we don't even have to laugh ourselves. Just hearing 25% of the room laugh means that we are giving a more powerful presentation we are affecting more people our points are landing more deeply into the minds of the people in the room if you can wrap those points up with a bit of humor
1: that's really so interesting that, i both got like, that thinking
2: yeah. look on your face so yeah. for, for those listening at home um both, both the guys are looking up to their left in that thinking mode going
1: mm. ah <laughs> Yeah, where can we going take that? Oh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> this happens so often. You get used to just listening to podcasts, you're know, like walking or driving or whatever, and you're just like, I need to pause this and think. And you can stare off into space and it's fine, but when the person's here and it's real, it's like, hang on, we have. To, where's the next question? Cut that out. It's <laughs> all
0: right. I actually find it really interesting, the physician comment, um, because when you look at it, I guess logically, I don't want a GP that's funny. I want a GP that knows what's wrong. So I find that just a really interesting, that perception changes everything.
2: Well, again, mm. it's, it's about, um, you know, appropriate humour for the setting, you know, and, yeah. we can, and we can get into this later about what the safe targets of humour can be in the business sense and in a more um, professional sense. But, for example, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about later is, like, you don't make fun of your abilities to do your job in the business sense. So, like, if you're an accountant, don't be singing in a meeting with one of your clients, oh, I'm terrible with numbers, mate. <laughs> That's, you know, like, don't make jokes that indicate that you're terrible with numbers. Or if you're a physician, you know, don't make, don't, if you're a doctor, don't make jokes about being really crap at being a doctor. But there are lots of other things you can make jokes about. That um, you know, just show that you are a human being on the other side of that desk.
0: Yeah, for sure. I always target my driving and my parenting. Yeah,
2: <laughs> generally. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, Well, should we get in? Let's get into that about because um, I'm sure it's something yeah. that the listeners would find interesting. You know, yes. what are the safe targets? What are the things yeah. that you can make fun, make humor with in the business sense? So, first of all, there are shared frustrations. There are common enemies, and yourself. And like I said, first of all, the caveat with yourself is, um, you know, don't make fun of your ability to do the job. Or you know, if I'm on stage presenting because I talk about being more resilient through times of change, so I'm really busy at the moment, as you'd expect. Uh, this is being filmed after a year of COVID. Uh, this is being recorded after a year of COVID. At, at, um, so I wouldn't make fun of the research that I'm presenting with respect to um, helping people be more resilient. But I can make fun of myself, like you say, like as a dad, um, you know, as a member of a group that I know there are lots of other people in that room who are also members of that group. So things that we might find in, that I know I've got in common with lots of people in that group, um, you know, so so there's that. Make fun of uh, yourself and your own experience. So I, I can make fun of, as you say, being a dad, like my interactions with my kids. Because everyone else in the room, will the, the key to the thing that I say is, They have to see their story in your story. So if I'm telling a story about um, being there with my kids, then I deliberately phrase things and throw things in there like, you know, have have your kids ever said something like that to you? So you're like, you make sure they see their story in your story when you're telling a story to people. So there's that. There's make fun of yourself, shared frustrations and common enemies. So shared frustrations could be like the commute, on your way uh, however everybody got to the conference venue that you're at or the work site or the you know the building the the usual place that you're in or at the moment zoom like zoom is the Mm. ultimate source of rapport building in the world at the moment like you know talk about the latest um ridiculous thing you've seen on zoom where you know those ones where the reporters presenting to the, the news And her husband walks through in his undies and goes oh oh no, and backs out of the room or, you know, those ones where the kid comes in and sits on the expert's lap as he's talking to BBC and all that sort of stuff. So we all have these things that we're finding frustrating and difficult at the moment. So make fun of them, make fun of them, because instantly people are people who will share that frustration with you and common enemies, you know, for example, in a business sense, Quite often, a common enemy in the business sense is regulation. You know the regulations in your industry. You can make fun of those sorts of things. Of course, yeah. You can make fun of the client that you used to have that everyone was really uh, pleased that they don't have anymore. Or you know, depending on the circumstances, the competition. You know, if you're pitching for new business, if you can slide in a couple of bit of gentle smile humour that make um, makes fun of the typical attitude of your main competition in that competitive pitch then, you know, that can work really well for you. That, that you'd have to do research and find out, you know, get to know the potential client really well first and make sure they don't, they wouldn't take that as being, that's just not proper or something like that. But yeah. you can, you know, make some very, very gentle um, things about they probably would have done this this way or something like that. Or, you know, if, a, if something uh, catastrophe happens, like in the presentation room, um, I wonder how the other guys would have handled this. They probably would have bloody bloody blah, 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 or something like that. Um, Yeah. So um, common enemies, shared frustrations and yourself are three really safe targets that you can always use. Now, do not ever make fun of other people in the room. Do not ever um, make fun of, you know, other people in your business, you know, on a, on a personal level, you know, ridiculous things like, you know, sometimes, you know, you see people coming into the workplace and they've quite obviously ripped material off YouTube clips (laughs) of um, proper stand up comedians and they've come into the office in the morning, and and you know, like, just don't be that guy. And, and I and I don't say guy as the generic pejorative male pronoun. Like it, it's it's always a guy that does it. Guys do this. They like they come in and they're like, you know, pulling off you know Chris Rock's material or ripping off Ricky Gervais's material or something like that, and trying to pass it off as their own. And like you know, like oh hey Jenny, I see you've got a new haircut. Bloody bloody blah. You know right? Like don't do that because everyone sees straight through it. And making fun of people is the complete opposite of this idea of bringing everyone together in a, in a safe environment uh, and making everyone feel a um, an amorphous blob of safeness because we're all laughing at the same thing. If Jenny is that thing we're all laughing at, that just totally divides the room and completely defeats the purpose.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, that does feel like, if I can go back to the, you know, making gentle fun at the competition, that feels advanced to me. I feel like that is a thin line that you could walk sometimes. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. So I could be wrong, but is that something that you'd suggest people start with or probably no, not? No, like I said, it no, feels advanced.
2: Great question. And and um, because when people come to me for this um, little bit of more funny, more money coaching and that sort of thing, the thing I say to start with is come along to the session where you're going to get me to coach you with your three favorite funny stories that you tell socially. And and if and if you don't know what they are, ask your partner. They will.
1: <laughs> I've got two already. I
2: just... <laughs> you know, like everyone's got like two or three stories yeah. that when you're at a barbecue, when you're at a dinner party, um, when you're just um, at the pub. And again, apologies to those still in lockdown when you're when you're at a pub. Um, just <laughs> and and three or four three or four beers in, and you know the uh, the laughter is flowing. Everyone's going well. You know, my wife, my, my wife will say to me, like, oh God, you know, Marty's gonna pull out the Star Wars in French story again. Here we <laughs> go. <laughs> and like, we've all got those stories. And the reason I say to start with those is that you've told them 30, 40, 50 times before, and you know how to tell them really well. So firstly, they're really they're a real safe zone for you as a presenter. So when you start telling this story your shoulders broaden, you start to smile because you know where they're going to laugh and you know how to set them up really well so that they do laugh because yep. you've practised it socially. You've practised it in front of an audience many times before. Like when when I was a stand-up comic, you know, there's you have material that you call bankers where you just know this material always does really well. It never fails. And, you know, if something happens and, you know, someone gets up or, you know, sadly, when, you, when you're a stand-up comic, sometimes someone gets dragged out because they're too drunk at the staff Christmas party or something like that, when there's been a big disruption and the audience is like, oh, what's going to happen here? You go straight to one of your bankers and you do a bit of material that you know works really well. So start with those. So ask your husband, ask your wife, ask your boyfriend, ask your girlfriend, ask your significant other, ask your family. What are those two or three stories that you tell again and again and again that you know works really well? And then work out how to retrofit them into a presentation that you've got coming up and so the thing about stories is firstly when we're telling a story like if you try and tell jokes i say to people don't try and tell jokes don't even try to do one-liners to start off because it sets up a situation where the, the audience know you're looking for a laugh and so the mind starts to go straight away. Oh, what if we don't laugh? Is he going to be okay? Like maybe I should laugh to be polite. You know, like it just sets up this (laughs) um, raises the fear in the room. But if you start telling a story and you don't set it up by saying, i got a really funny story about this. Don't start like that. Just start telling a story. And then at the end, when it's really funny, it's just like, Oh wow. That's just, uh, you know, um, icing on top of the cake. That's just fantastic. So when you've told a really funny story, the audience absolutely adores you. They absolutely love you to bits because you've just taken them on this little journey. You know, I, I, I'm sure you've had um, more qualified storytelling experts on your podcast than me to talk about why that is and, you know, the the neuroscience behind um, why telling stories is so powerful and it takes people out of the moment. And, you know, there's this thing called the referential shift where if you're hearing a story like you stop seeing whatever you're seeing now and you start seeing what the characters are seeing and feeling in the story there's really really powerful mechanisms for stories but when all of a sudden there's a laughter at the end there's laughter at the end of that it's absolutely magic so I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself it's in magic. that pe- people say to me, "How can I use like just funny stories from my own life for funny stories?" when people uh, when you've just made a whole room full of people laugh, they absolutely adore you so. After that, when you say "The reason I tell you that story is this," and then explain the reason why you told them that story, they'll believe you and if you unless it's absolutely ludicrous, like <laughs> they will they they will really will believe you and you can you can make a story. Um, fit almost any point you're trying to make um, so you know for example they, they did an exercise where they asked I think it was like about 300 people what the moral of the three little pigs was the story of the three little pigs yeah and they when they summarized it there was about um, between 60 and 70 different morals that people said was that's the one thing that you really learn by, by that story the three little pigs huh. and it all depends on Who's the main character in your mind? You know, what's the main bit of conflict in your mind? Like, um, what, what's the main um, evolution that happens to the main character in, in their mind? And so there's lots of different ways. If, if you asked 100 people, what's the, what's the moral of the, the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope or something like that, you'd get like 80 different things as to what it is. And so if, you, if you've got a really great two or three stories... You can actually make them fit different things you can make them fit different stories so like um for example i've got I, I tell a story on stage about this really good friend of mine um sean richards that sean richards is in one of those families where everything they do they do it because they've always done it that way it's family tradition and um and i have this thing every single sunday afternoon they have this the um richards family lamb roast The traditional Richards family lamb roast, the whole family comes around, four generations come around to their house, 4pm on a Sunday, they've been doing it for about 40, 50 years. And if you're in the Richards family, you have to go, like you you can't, there's no excuses, the whole family has to come, like, you know, blood or broken bones, like trip to the hospital is the only reason you can get get out of it. And Sean married this girl called Sophie. In Sophie's family, they had traditions too. In Sophie's family, the firstborn male child in every generation was called Richard, now, Sean Richards didn't want a kid called Richard Richards, <laughs> but he was so keen to get his lamb roast over the line in his, in his marriage and get Sophie to commit to that, he gave in. And little Richie Richards was born. Hey, Richie, Richie Richards. You know, it's quite a cool name when you're in primary school. They're like, hey, I'm Richie Richards. Oh, there goes Richie Richards. Hey, Richie. First day of high school, Richie <laughs> comes home in floods of tears. He's like, "Oh, please don't send me to high school. Let me go back to little school." And Sean and Sophie are just taken aback that it's like, oh, "What happened, mate? What is what? what what's going on?" Like, I know not many of your friends went to the school, and Sean and Sophie and, and R- 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 Richie's there, going, "Please don't send me to high school, please, mum and dad." And Sean is saying, "What is it, mate? I know it's a much bigger school. Please don't send me to high school. What is it, mate? What's happened?" And he said, "They call me Double dick. <laughs> And now, poor old Doubledick, he's 19 now, they still call him (laughs) Double Dick. But when I tell that story on stage, I say, now, Sean and Sophie, like their instincts were screaming at Sean's instincts were screaming at him not to call his kid Doubledick, but he didn't listen. So what in your business have you had that little inkling in the back of your head? And you've said to yourself, We really shouldn't do this, and you didn't listen. And like sometimes Um, you've got to listen to that. And then I go into my speech about one of the points I sometimes make is in times of stress, it's good to pause and take time out to listen to that little alarm bell going off in the back of your mind. But other times I use that story to illustrate the point when the consequences of a decision will have long-term consequences, take more time to make that decision. And you can see how that point is just as easily um, illustrated by the double-deck story. And, um, you know, and I've, I've used that story to make three or four different points because, you know, everyone's laughing, everyone thinks it's a great story. Yeah. When I go straight into, um, you know, the point of that story is this, and then get them to see their story in my story. So in your business, um, when has there been a time when you've had that? So can you see how the mechanism, so use a story that you know and love really well, have a think about what the point is, the point that would serve your presentation And then reflect it back on them and say, um, so in your business, in your workplace, um, in this room, you know, in the people in this room, how can we use that lesson in this way? That's the formula for for starting out using anyone can start out in putting a bit of humour in any presentation. Mic drop, I'm out of here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a beautiful example of a story is just a vehicle for delivering a message and often you can pull as you say, two, three, four more messages out of a story than that. And it's it's certainly interesting because your friend and his kid are not specifically relevant to the point you're trying to make. It is just a vehicle to provide a an analogy yeah. to the message of your presentation.
2: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And it's such, it's such a um, good point you raised that, you know, so many people, and I know when we're um, organising this uh, this interview, we are talking about the fact that so many people um, in middle management level in corporates um, think that when they're presenting, all everybody wants to hear is facts and figures. Hmm. All everybody wants to hear is case studies and facts and figures and research and that sort of stuff. And that is important there, there will be a percentage of the room who really want to hear your stuff backed up by that sort of thing but everyone in the room is a human being and so if you've got half an hour like the greatest resource that everybody has is their time if you've got a half an hour of somebody's time you've got a half an hour of a hundred people's time particularly at the moment down a zoom camera then you know if you can give them some little bit of joy for four minutes and then make a point afterwards <laughs> Then you know you are going to stand head and shoulders. I know you and I were talking, Kate, about how um, you know in middle management people sort of seem to think that you know you have to be like I said at the start. This is business. This is serious. And it's when you get up uh, to the top levels of management and leadership in businesses that you know you seem to notice a lot more uh, a lot more people up there behave like people. And and there's there's a lot of research to show that it's not that or well, you have to wait till you get up there before you can start behaving like a real person. It's the real people get promoted up to there. Like there was um, a study done in um, Harvard Business Review where uh, CEOs preferentially hire people who have a good sense of humour. I'll just, I'll just go to the front of me. I'll read it out just to make sure I, I uh, again, get my research right because there'll be people <laughs> listening who really want that. They um, ran an article on a, a hodge Cronin Associates survey of 737 CEOs of major corporations, that showed an amazing 98% said they would hire someone with a good sense of humor over someone who seemed to have a, a lack of sense of funny and it found executives with a great sense of humor also earn more money than those who are sticks in the mud so if you're thinking that well that's all well and good for you know Marty Wilson former Australian comic of the year bloody blah, bloody blah, blah, blah but I could never do that you can you can and it will be more money in your pocket if you do so but what if you just not funny,
0: you know. We've got people who are that fact and figure type person. They say, "I'm, I'm just not funny. Like it's just not possible for me. I'm just not that type of person. I'm the engineer."
2: I, I um, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, but I call bullshit. I call that that's absolute garbage. Um, you know, I think a really good friend of mine, uh, Jim Hunter, over in the UK, he was told when he was seven. By a teacher, you can't sing. Don't sing. You can't sing, Jim. Just don't sing. Just mouth the words when we're um, when we're singing. And so, it wasn't till his wife asked him to come along to a choir when he was like thirty-eight, and he said, oh, "I can't sing." She was like, "I've heard you sing in the shower. You have a gorgeous voice." And he's joined a choir at thirty-eight, and and loved it. Absolutely loved it. And and I think a lot of people um, have had that experience trying to be funny. You know, some people um, just are, uh, you know, more, more open to being um, affected detrimentally by a lack of laughter when they try to be funny. And they've had those experience early on in life, maybe in their teens or something like that. And so they've just sort of given up and said, no, nah, um, that, that's not for me. That's just not for yeah. me. You know, when, when in our teens, we all, we all develop um, what some psychologists call a winning formula for how to navigate through life. And, you know, for me, fortunately, I, I had an older brother who was um, like smarter than me and better at sport than me. So my winning formula was to be funny. He was like 17 months older than me. And so I was very fortunately experimenting with the idea of trying to be funny when I was too young to know that my jokes didn't work. <laughs> like, you now, when, when you, when you're sort of eight, nine, 10, 11, if you tell a joke and it falls flat, you don't care. You just try again, you rework it. And like, and you keep trying till you, till you get it again. Yeah. And so, and, and so I just i just grew up and you know my family encouraged it and i got attention through being funny and then became the class dickhead all my, all, all my school reports were you know um achieves great results with the minimum of effort and we wish he would stop distracting others and all that, all that sort of stuff that's um so I, that was my winning formula was to use humor so um but for some people their first time trying to do it, it's like if they you know throw a joke out into a room or into a presentation, it only gets a two and a half out of 10 laugh. They say to themselves, Well, I'm not doing that again. I'm never doing that again.
0: Well, no so, one wants to be Michael Scott, do they? <laughs> like, people are genuinely scared of that. They don't want to be the cringy manager, yeah. the cringy guy in the office.
2: And, and but that's again, that's um, sort of brings me back to if you want to start using humor, don't try and do one liners that have a target of, you know, that make fun of other people's weaknesses like, like he often does. Mm-hmm you know, don't, um, you know, don't be like uh, my apologies to anyone who doesn't agree with me on this, but like, don't be like Donald Trump, where like the only time he ever used humor was to make fun of someone else's lower status in comedy term in comedy parlance, we call it punching down. Mm. So um, when you are in a position of status or in a position of privilege, it is beneath you to punch down to like, um, to look downwards at those below you and make fun of them. And push them even further down with ridicule and humor. There's an old saying, uh, there's a guy called Scott Dickers, who was the guy who started uh, The Onion, that satirical news website, yeah. The Onion. That's, you know, he started that many years ago. And he says, um, you have to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable um, with your humor. And uh, the way I say it is like, you have to use humor as a shield, not a dagger. So when um, someone has a go at you, like, yeah, okay, you know, fend them off, fend them off with a bit of humour. Um, but, you know, Michael Scott quite often he tries to use humour as a dagger to, to raise his status in the workplace. Like, don't be that guy. Right? Mm. <laughs> don't, don't be that guy.
0: So how do you recover then if you get, you know, you said you get a two and a half laugh out of ten. How do you recover from a dead joke?
2: All, all comedians have lines that we call savers, which are, because, um, you know... One of the people ask me what's if there's one lesson that I learned from being a stand up for 10 years, it is be willing to fail publicly and not care, be willing to understand that me on stage isn't me, Marty Wilson, like um, Julia Morris, the comedian here in Australia, when we're touring around over in the UK, she has this lovely phrase where she says there's big Julia and little Julia. Um, little Julia, as you're saying this to me, little Julia is the person who's in the car with you now when we're driving to a gig in Wales. And big Julia is me on stage. And that's a very different person. That's that's not me. That's, that's the person that's me to the power of three or something like that. But you have to detach yourself from your art. You have to detach yourself from your joke. Someone telling me that that joke wasn't funny or a whole audience at times telling me that that joke wasn't funny doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. Doesn't mean that it, it's like, if you make a sculpture or if you um, write a book there'll be some people who love that book and some people who don't love that book and that's okay in fact if you're if you're trying to be um, successful like that's like you have to accept that if you want to take a risk at making making the room laugh then you have to accept some people in the room won't like it but like i said if you only make 25 percent of the room laugh you've already won even if you just and, and even just attempting to say, to tell a story that has a funny punchline at the end of it, people admire you for even trying because they're too scared to do it themselves. And so as long as you don't have, uh, you know, any viciousness in it and no, um, you know, uh, targets that are in the room and that sort of thing, as long as your humour is not designed to bring other people down, then first of all, you can have some savers. So what what I was saying, comedians have lines called savers, which are, you know, um, Arne for example, um, he, he the key he does it beautifully. He um, first of all, you stand there and you show the audience that you don't care they didn't laugh. Like you you can't you can't show any weakness whatsoever for a start. Just, just stands there with a big smile on his face and goes, That's my favorite joke. I don't care if you like it. That's my that's my <laughs> personal favorite joke that I'm gonna to do tonight. And like, and, and just stand there with a massive smile on his face and not care that no one laughed. It's great. And then Or you can say, one of the things um, I do is I have like a $50, if I'm trying some new material out, I have a $50 note in my pocket, in my my shirt top pocket, and I'll get it out if I say a line that doesn't work. And I'll um, quickly, sometimes even run off stage or run to the person in the room, the person who put me on that stage, the person who asked me to present and go, I checked in with Jenny before I got up here, whether that joke would work. She said it wouldn't, I bet her 50 bucks it would. There you go. And then you give $50 to them. And so that, that again, it just the key to it is audience will feel awkward if they see you feeling awkward. So ask yourself, what am I going to do if this line doesn't work? Or What am I going to do if this story only gets a 4 out of 10 laugh? Uh, and then be prepared so that you don't feel shocked if it happens. So be prepared for what you're going to do if it absolutely kills and everyone laughs and be prepared for the way you're going to react if it doesn't and rehearse it. Rehearse, like do your big punchline in the story, whatever that punchline is, and then rehearse and just say, that's my favorite story. Uh, you know, my, uh, my four-year-old loves that story or, you know, like, you know, something like that and, and say that line and rehearse doing that so that when it happens, your brain, you know, that if-then implementation all that sort of stuff that, um, if this, then that stuff that works in corporate, that works with your brain. So if it doesn't work, You'll go through the thing you rehearsed for when it doesn't work. And if it does work, you'll stand there and go, oh, you know, my five-year-old loves that story even more. He, he, he's asked me to tell it four times in the last two days. You know, whatever, whatever it is that you're going to say. But just rehearse it so that when it happens, you're ready to deliver the, the next line afterwards.
1: I really love that, uh, the Julia wisdom, big Julia and the little Julia, that idea that you just turn it on. I guess that idea of detaching yourself from the craft and from the art, is it a bit like throwing spaghetti at a wall? You throw a bunch of content into your presentations at an audience and the bits that stick you use next time and everything else just it didn't work, move on.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's why the, the great place to start is using stories that you already know work. Because um, you know you, you deliver them really well, but when it comes to you know sideways quips and lines and that sort of stuff, um, yeah, it is exactly that. You know, it, it, the process of being a stand-up comic is you know the the joke that you think or the you know the little bit of wordplay that you think is absolute comedy gold when you're sitting in the hotel room before before the gig, and you know and you know you've got to try it four or five times to make sure you know that that room just might not have liked it or something like that, but um, you know, four or five rooms don't even give it a peep. Then it's just not funny, and you and you need to rework it. But it really is a case of, uh, as you say, just you know, let the spaghetti fall to the floor that doesn't stick, and then you know move on. Because the 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 key to writing successful him if you want to write a really funny joke on a particular subject, write fifty jokes. And three of them will be really funny. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Jerry Seinfeld documentary about his, his process where he just gets up, he writes, he finalizes a new joke every single day. Um, So he's got 365 new lines every single day. Now um, that's, uh you know he does gigs and he works them out on stage and then he comes back and recrafts them so it's, it's like he knows the idea behind it is funny he just hasn't chosen the right words he's very very exact in the way in the way he presents his you know he'll, he'll change um the word bunch to handful or you know that you know that sort of stuff and and see which one's funny he'll try it out one night and he'll try out the next night with a slightly different twist or you know put the subject before the predicate and all that all that sort of stuff um he's very very exact with the way he does things um I'm not. <laughs> you nobody got time for that. <laughs> but um, I'm much more a, a storyteller than a, than a joke teller sort of thing. But, um, you know, it, it's, as you say, you've got to detach yourself from the the bit of you that's on stage because that's not you as a person. That's just a joke that you thought was going to be funny. And and if it's not, then either make it funny or find another one. You know, that, that, and yeah. that's okay.
1: Yeah.
2: And no, no one's, that's the thing, you know, um, no one has ever had that one big presentation where their whole career revolved around it. You know, like it just doesn't really work that way. You're, you can't attach your self-esteem to today's presentation, you know, because there'll be another one next week and the week after and the week after. So just, you know, keep, and it's not about today being perfect. It's about was today's presentation better than the one you gave a year ago. And if it is, you yeah. can keep going, just get better and better and better. Um, so Marty, we haven't actually gotten to your career,
0: which we probably should have done up front. Before you were a professional speaker, you're a stand-up comic. And before that, we believe you were a pharmacist. I
2: was, I was. I was a I was a pharmacist. I'm a third generation pharmacist, married to a nurse whose brother's a GP. So I come from a very medical family, very medical background. And but I think um, my dad was quite happy that I left pharmacy. My grandfather, who's uh, who's passed away now, he was horrified. He really wanted me to carry on uh, the family yep. business. But I think my dad could see, you know, everything from, you know, watching the goodies and Monty Python growing up and, and, you know, always, you know, watching. I went to see Billy Connolly and Rowan Atkinson and Spike Milligan live when I was 14. Those three. Oh, wow. And I think it really set, set things in stone then that um, where I was going to go. And I think my dad could tell. So I... I I got dared into doing stand-up comedy, uh, I think about when I was five years into doing Pharmacy. So I was at a very famous comedy pub called the Harold Park in Sydney. They used to have an open mic night on a Monday night. And I got dared into doing it that by a group of friends. And it was one of those lovely things where, you know, I'd, I'd always been like, the MC at friends um, birthday parties and 18ths and doing speeches and everything. Cause I'd always love even at school, I used to do skits making fun of the headmaster at assembly and that sort of thing. I'd always <laughs> loved just um, showing off and being funny. And so I, I did this um, open mic night and it was one of those lovely things where they asked me back the week after to do it again. And then the third week they paid me and it was just like, Hang on a second. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it was just like for an open spot, you know, like, you know, a little 10 minute spot, you know, it was probably, you know, 20 bucks or 25 bucks, something like that. <laughs> and so after that, um, it was just like, that was it. I, I thought, you know, I can actually learn and earn a living doing this sort of thing. And then, so I um, delightfully you know went on and just you know threw myself into it and I won this thing called Australian Comic of the Year a couple of years later and, and used that as a bridgehead to get across to the UK I uh, moved across to the UK and, and did stand up full-time over there for eight years that's then, where it's at isn't it yeah yeah I mean I, I mean it's it's um it certainly was at the time like the, it was the absolute um, busiest most thriving comedy probably you know a, a bit up and down compared to... Uh, you know, six to one and a half dozen the other compared to the US, like the US is, you know, pretty big uh, these days. And, and comedy is much more a TV driven industry now where there's, you know, 27 different chat, chat shows you can get yourself on and, and that sort of stuff that um, now, like it's much, much bigger business. I, I possibly uh, shouldn't have left it when I, when I did. But it, it was just um, when I was a stand up comic, my wife was an accident emergency nurse. And she would take Sunday Monday off, and that would be our weekend. And and you know we um, or she'd come away with me for the weekend if she could, if I was away, she'd come with me to like, Pan and Hong Kong and Bangkok. You'd get flown around all these and anywhere in when you're on the UK scene, anywhere there were big communities of British expats, there would always have a comedy club that um you'd get flown to and just so you know I I won't brag too much like if Billy Conley or Michael McIntyre is a ten. And open mic is a one. I was probably about a seven and a half, something like that. You know, sort of closing most of the comedy clubs and that. But certainly not with my own Netflix special and, and that sort of thing. Um, but when when we got married and started having kids, like I, my wife sort of had to fit in with re- regular society, and you know take regular weekends off. And then I, I remember it really clearly someone said to me, oh, so I suppose the the real long-term plan is to be like Billy Connolly and be on tour six months of the year. And it was one of those, like, you know, that record scratch sound effect and, you know, they call it a dolly zoom in the movies where, like, mm-hmm. the camera just zooms in on the hero's face in the background. And it was like, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want that at all. Like, once I had a kid, like, it, it just it all, it all changed. So we moved back from London and... Um, And I started trying to be just be an author. I've got a a book series called What I Wish I Knew over here in Australia. And I tried to just be an author, but that, you know, pretty tough, like just to survive on being an author. Then someone asked me to um, speak about this What I Wish I Knew book series. And I just absolutely loved it it because I I almost became a teacher straight out of school. And so being a a speaker, I speak at corporate uh, environments, um, corporate events and conferences and things like that. Um, and so being a corporate keynote speaker, because I'm, I'm normally like the on first day one guy who sort of sets up the thing and gets everyone out of work mode and, you know, real high energy and that sort of stuff. And um, it combines being a teacher with being a stand up comic. And, and, uh, and I get paid to do that um, week in, week out. and I bloody love it. Of course it. And it's also it's during the week, during the day, most of the time, as opposed to being a stand up, which is on the weekend at night which makes a, it's pretty incompatible with being a decent husband and father. You know, you, mm. you, there's not many stand-up comics that you hear about, um, particularly, you know, the really big ones who have had the same partner for 40 years and, and all that sort mm. of stuff. You know, it's um, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough on your, your family life, I think.
0: Yeah. I um, started to double in stand-up comedy. I think I was just pregnant with my second and um, yeah, the last, gig I guess uh, I was 38 weeks pregnant and yeah haven't even nice. looked at it since he's about to turn two. um it's it's just impossible with yeah, little ones I totally understand that um with my you know four open mics that I did <laughs> yeah I'm with you brother
2: I'm
1: with you yeah
0: I understand it all
1: <laughs> look at look at <out>. <laughs> all
0: right um Marty before we wrap up I want to know do you have maybe three top tips for being funny in a business setting
1: three
2: top tips for being funny in a business setting uh, that I, I'm just trying to think that I haven't already spoken about. Maybe, maybe what, what I might, what I might say is um, if there's people still sitting on the fence um, three more reasons why you should um, using humor in your message increases your ability to persuade people, because if you can wrap up your message with a bit of humor, you know, nine times out of 10, if, if I just to say to you, uh, all elephants are pink, your prefrontal cortex very quickly shuts in and says, well, that's garbage. They're, everyone knows they're not pink, that's ridiculous. Whereas if I um, tell you a story, a really, really funny story that just happens to illustrate the fact that all elephants are pink, it totally distracts that rational part of your brain from forming counter arguments to, um, to bring up when you're, <laughs> when you're talking to me. And and also, if, if I'm trying to convince you of a fact, if I can use humour to illustrate that fact, and you laugh out loud when i present it then you have acknowledged that that fact is true without even without even having to admit to it so if you can if you can make a whole room laugh at the fact that it's ridiculous that the computer room is still over there when it should be down here or you know whatever message you're trying to convey or persuade people then they can't argue with you cuz like you know you just walk away and go there we are like you know you know everyone acknowledges that this thing is true Humour also increases long-term memory retention of your message. So um, because, again, like if, if you're presenting facts to people, it's your prefrontal cortex, this bit behind uh, the front of your brain, behind your forehead, that decides that, uh, whether you believe that or not um, and, and is responsible for deciding whether that gets implanted into your memory centres in your, in your brain or not. And so a lot of the time, that's why facts fall away. But when you use humour, because humour uses so many different parts of our brain, it uses the emotional centres, it uses um, the interpretation centres, quite often it uses like, you know, um, because, you know, when you're hearing a really good story, your brain, uh, if you're hearing about um, what someone's hearing, then the hearing centres in your brain light up. If you're hearing about the smell centre, like the smell centres light up. So lots of different parts of your brain come together to solve the punchline in in a bit of humor. Like, you know, because quite often a punchline is a bit of a puzzle where, you know, you think X is happening, but what's actually happening is Y. And when your brain jumps those tracks, that's the point when you laugh. And so because humor is quite often a little puzzle, it takes lots of different parts of your brain to light up. And that makes things much more memorable because your brain is far more active. And lastly, if you want to get your business noticed, Um, Like every business or entrepreneur who has a social media strategy should take funny seriously because what we notice, we notice funny things and we share funny things and we follow funny things. There was a, um, oh, the name of the company that studied what people like and share on the internet. And I'll I'll grab the figures just to make sure I say it right. So it was the emotion of awe was 25%. So like that, oh, wow, that just blows my mind. And, And they separated laughter, amusement, and joy into three separate categories. So laughter was 17%, amusement, 15%, joy, 14%. Anger, six, empathy, six, and others, little ones were added up to 17. But if you add up laughter, amusement, and joy, so if you just put things into your social media strategy, that like, it doesn't have to be laugh out loud. Smile humor is incredibly powerful in the business sense. So if you just get people (laughs) like that, that's enough that people will share in, in the business sense. So if you add up, you know, 32, 46% of stuff that's shared on the internet is stuff that makes us smile. So if you want to be successful at getting people to share things on social media, take funny seriously. See how I worked my catchphrase in right at the end.
1: <laughs> All right. Before we let you go, Marty, what's a book or resource that's influenced the way that you speak?
2: Yeah, so um, I mentioned a guy called Scott Dickers before, the guy who's um, started up The Onion. Um, he has a three-book series called How to Write Funny, How to Write Funnier, and How to Write Funniest. <laughs> like, uh, honestly, if you want to learn how to generate um, humour in your uh, – he runs this course now that uh, coaches people how to join – like comedy writing in the professional industry and that sort of thing he's a really really funny guy who's really dissected humor in a really big way so Scott Dickers D I K K E R S and it's how to write funny how to write funnier and how to write funniest even just like you know little tips like i think he's got 11 in the first book about how to generate humor so, for example, um, one is hyperbole or exaggeration beyond the point where it could be considered credible. So, for example, when I moved up to, uh, to Queensland a couple of years ago, you know, for those listening around the world, you know, Sydney people view Queensland the same way that New York people would view Texas. And Queensland doesn't do daylight saving, um, whereas uh, the, South, the South does. So I said, when I'm moving up to Queensland, I have to remember to set my, set my watch back to 1984 (laughs) and so you know again not the best joke in the world but you can see it illustrates you exaggerate to the point that it's physically impossible and people go ah that's a joke i get it i get it so yeah scott dickers how to write funny how to write funnier and how to write funniest there's fantastic methods that i promise you can use to add humor into your presentations
0: Awesome. That's a book that I haven't heard of books that I haven't heard of before. So, um, and then final question, Marty, where can
2: people find you? So if it's looking at adding humor into your presentations, morefunnymoremoney.com there, you can buy copies of my book and there's um, some free resources there. And um, there's a thing I I interviewed 40 of the world's best speakers, uh, funniest speakers for the international business humor summit. Um, You can get from down there as well. And if you're just looking at if your business is struggling under the weight of change and you need your people to be a bit more resilient, just go to martinwilson.com and there's all my
1: stuff about my speaking, is there? Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Marty Wilson, for sharing, for adding value and for being on the Presentation Boss podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. Sorry, I got (laughs) to (laughs) sneeze.